Am I on? There I am. Merry Christmas. As uh, we prepare for what Matthew has to share with us tonight, I would just like to read the words of God spoken through the prophet Isaiah 600 years before Jesus was born, approximately. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion of, will, his dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of Armies will accomplish this. Let's pray. Almighty God, the song asked, who would have dreamed <laughs> that we, we could hold God in our hands, that God would become one of us? I think the answer is you dreamed it. You, you knew it was necessary. From the time we were created, you knew this would be what was needed. So I just pray tonight, as Matthew speaks, as we hear your word, that you would help us to realize once again, anew, maybe even for the first time, what incredible thing you did by sending your son to die in our place. We pray this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn to that passage that, John, or that Ron just read for us, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. We're going to get there. We're going to get back there in a little bit. I am plagued by voices. That's the testimony of Andrew Peterson, an accomplished musician songwriter, storyteller, novelist, and artist who is also remarkably creative, mature, and a deeply spiritual disciple of Jesus, the Messiah. And he is plagued by voices, and they're not good ones. Listen to how he describes it. When I'm alone, I hear them loudest. They ambush me. It happens when I'm working, 
writing a song with my guitar in my lap or hunkered over my computer with a chapter to write. Many times it happens when I'm driving, and so I'll turn on the radio for distraction. But most often, it happens when I'm mowing my lawn, and I can't hide in the safety of a good song. I steer my mower like it's a getaway car around old trees and across the field amidst the flapping of dark, leathery wings. God help me, I mutter when I look out the window and see that the grass is tall. I have to mow this week. He says further, my friend Michael Card said once that your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. Well, I make my living by imagination. The books and the songs that I write are the result of, among other weaknesses, an overactive imagination, one that has been abused as much as it's been used. My imagination is populated with truths and untruths, bright skies and dark mountains, horses and hags, it rings with the voice I imagine to be God's and hisses with the voice I imagine to be Satan's. The day may be as sunny as spring with the smell of grass clippings in the air, but wars are waged in my mind between the front lawn and the back lawn. He goes on to talk in this testimony of of all the ways that the voices know his weaknesses, his failures, his sins, his mistakes, his wrong decisions, his regrets. Maybe you can relate. I think that all of us have probably had to some degree or another that experience of the voice in our minds that points out that failure, right? I mean, I know I can relate. There's so many ways that, that when these voices come that we maybe we try and calm or quiet them down. We try and drown them out. For some of us, the voices get very loud. I know at times like that, I'll share that with Susan and <laughs> she'll grab me gently by the cheeks with her hands. And she'll say, stop. Stop listening to the voices. They're not true. They're not speaking truth to you. It's warfare. The Bible calls Satan, his name in Greek is Apollyon, the accuser, the great accuser. Maybe you're here tonight and you're wondering or thinking, my goodness, this is a dark way to start a Christmas Eve service. But I wonder if we listen to the songs of Christmas closely. There is a darkness at the edge of the bright lights. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. We sing that with with nary a thought. But the truth is there. 
it remains that this world does lay long in sin and error, pining. You see, I believe that Andrew's experience is common to all of us. Again, not at the same level of intensity maybe, but we all are, I think, at one time or another, plagued by voices that come from within us, or sometimes we're plagued by voices that come from outside of us. Voices that cause us to doubt. Voices that bring regret. Voices that dredge up past mistakes and wrongdoings and failures and sins. Voices that are not silenced by the songs or sentiments of Christmas. Voices that have as their aim our ruin. To bring us to a state of collapse or comprehensive disintegration. Andrew's being plagued by voices reminded me of another man thousands of years, thousands of years before him who was plagued by visions. The difference was that these these visions were not brought by a fallen accuser, but by a holy God. And yet the outcome was the same. Ruin. A comprehensive collapse of a man named Isaiah before his creator. You see, I want you to understand tonight that when you hear this familiar passage in Isaiah 9, you cannot possibly understand it without understanding and hearing Isaiah 6. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh, here's his vision, seated on a high and lofty throne. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. And the foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices. And the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And I am ruined because my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of heaven's armies. Isaiah here expresses the great sorrow that he carries with one little three-letter word. Woe. Woe communicates anguish, pain, regret, and shame. I picture Isaiah fallen to the ground with his face pressed in the dirt, tears streaming down his eyes. He's just ruined, ruined in the presence of a holy God brought to a state of collapse 
and comprehensive disintegration. Why? Why is Isaiah ruined? Because he recognizes in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God that he is a man of unclean lips. What's he on about by using that phrase? It's just a way of expressing his uncleanness before a perfectly pure God. You see, in the light of Yahweh's undefiled reality, Isaiah sees the darkness that pervades his humanity. But it is not just because of what he sees in himself that he declares his ruin. It is because of all that he sees around him that he understands that he stands on the edge of ruin because he dwells among a people, a nation of unclean lips. Darkness fills the world around him so that his culture and his country are at the edge of ruin. Might we relate? And Isaiah knows that a holy God cannot ignore this, cannot tolerate this. A holy God actually extends and deepens the ruin of Isaiah in the righteousness of his judgment, which is why Yahweh of heaven's armies tells Isaiah, go and tell people that they hear, but they don't understand. They see, but they don't perceive. Their hearts are dull, and I mean to keep them in that state. For how long, Yahweh? Isaiah asks, until every house is empty until every city is destroyed until every last inhabitant of this land is carried away far from here everything isaiah is going to burn one author helpfully reflects on this passage this was almost impossible for isaiah to comprehend all of his life From the time he was just a wee lad, he'd heard stories of heroes and the battles that they had won, of leaders and the odds that they had overcome, of villains and the heights from which they had fallen. He could picture them in his mind. David with his sling, Abraham with his knife raised above his son, bound on the altar, Rachel capturing Jacob's heart. They were built into his understanding of who he was. Isaiah was one of them. So how could this be? How would it be that this would be Israel's end, ruin? Was this Isaiah's only message to a nation? Ruin? The fires of exile and judgment had to burn, but it would not be the end. It would get worse. Exile was coming, and there was no getting around it. It would be taxing and terrible, but as much as this news exhausted Isaiah, speaking it was only the beginning. For what people did with this message would be where the heavy lifting happened. It could bring about only one of two reactions, Isaiah's message in his life calling. One, it would bring the galvanizing of proud hearts against God. Or, It would bring about the calling of the contrite to repentance and the relief of an unburdened conscience. That is what Isaiah would declare, and these would be the two possible results. 
Andrew Peterson talked about the power of his imagination. I'd like you to engage yours right now, tonight. I want you to imagine the timeline of history. Okay, so, Ezra, will you come and help me? Are you going to imagine that I'm Isaiah, because, you know, I'm the older-looking one here with the gray hair in my beard, and there's the young buck over there. And I want you to imagine as if I were Isaiah, and there's this entire long timeline that has stretched out for centuries upon centuries, right, to, to Ezra who's standing in the year 2023. And the glory, I think, of Christmas, this is what struck me this year as I was studying Isaiah and the message that we read, is that that Christmas, what the glory of Christmas does is it's almost as if Christmas folds the timeline of history on itself so that it brings us together, those of us in 2023, to stand shoulder to shoulder. How you doing? Doing great. (laughs) To stand shoulder to shoulder with Isaiah. And we experience the very same things that that he experienced. As we stand where he stood, we see how similar our realities actually are. We say in this age, in our reality, we can say the same words. We can look with Isaiah and go, yes, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am incredibly aware of all of my failures and my mistakes and my wrongdoings. I am aware of a dull and callous heart. I am aware of my half-hearted worship. I am aware of my impatience and my envies and my jealousies. I'm aware of my sharp words and my frustrations. I'm aware of not trusting as I should. And I'm ruined when I think of the totality of that. So I, I feel Isaiah. And in the same way, we stand on this timeline of history, shoulder to shoulder with Isaiah, and we can say, woe is me, because, because we stand among a people of unclean lips. I look around and I see the absolute ruin of our culture. I see us entrapped by pornography. I see the sex trade that's thriving across the globe. I see human atrocity on a global and national scale as wars rage and people kill. I see us as nations and a world on the absolute edge and precipice of ruin. And at the same time, I see the hope, the same hope that Isaiah had. I get to stand shoulder to shoulder with Isaiah and now we make our way, thank you Ezra, we make our way even as we are confronted with our ruin, even as in that ruin some will have proud hearts galvanized against God, others will see the possibility of a relief that can come through repentance and an unburdened conscience because this is also the message of Isaiah how do we turn from the edge of ruin how can I unburden my conscience I have two choices I can get mad at God why aren't you doing something about this or I can see the possibility 
that he actually has. This is the great hope and joy of Christmas. This is the glory of the good news, which was part of Isaiah's message. You see, his hope is our hope. The people walking in darkness, he writes in chapter 9, have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation. You have increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of the oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For a child will be born for us. And here's the only difference between us and Isaiah, right? We stand together shoulder to shoulder, but Isaiah was looking forward to something and we're looking back at the reality of what has already happened in history. A child was born for us. A son has been given to us. And the government one day, and now here's where, here's where time gets a little squishy because we look back and now we look forward. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be named Wonderful. Saw that this morning, right? Wonderful. Seeing this counselor increases our awe and our wonder. He will be called Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And as we stand on the edge of seeming ruin, we look forward to the day and the promise that His dominion will be vast. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. How will this be done, Isaiah? (laughs) The zeal of Yahweh of heaven's armies will accomplish this. And when God gets his zeal on, we can trust things will happen. I wonder if you see it. I wonder if you see it. See, this is what was so encouraging to me this week as I thought about Isaiah chapter 9 is I could picture him standing there, this older man, hearing this prophecy that was given to him by God that he was going to declare to Israel, looking forward to the day way off in the future, not even knowing when is this going to come true. He didn't know it was going to come true. Ron told you it's going to be over 600 years. He wasn't going to get to experience this in his lifetime. He was looking to a future day. And now, I stand, we stand in the same place of Isaiah. Do you see it? We stand, once again, on the edge of ruin, our own personal, individual ruin and our national ruin. And what are we looking forward to again? A day when the Messiah will come. A day when I don't know. It could be 600 more years. It could be 2,000. It could be tonight. (laughs) <laughs> Maranatha, come. I don't need to open my presence. Come on back. And in the same way that Isaiah was looking forward to a Messiah, isn't it remarkable that we are also now looking forward to a Messiah? A Messiah who, unlike Isaiah, who didn't know, a Messiah who had come, 
who was born of a virgin, who grew up to be a man, who lived a sinless life, who of his own accord and in submission to his father laid his life down. He died the death that we deserved to die. He gives us the reward that only he deserved to have. And it's simply by believing in his name, Jesus, Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, we can live forever. We don't have to be afraid when he comes back with both a sword of judgment and a promise of life. And we can enter into a new heavens and a new earth to live with him forever. Never fearing ruin again. So the only question remains is what will you do? Will you maintain a proud heart galvanized against the one who would save you at Christmas? Or would you find the relief that would come through repentance? Repentance is just a churchy word that means a change of heart. You were headed one direction and now you're headed another. Would you like to unburden your conscience? Here's how Peterson described what happened to him. Worship team, would you come up? What defense have I but to flee? Not to flee from the enemy, but to flee to the protection of the king. You see, I, I flee to the one whose victory is sure, whose strength is perfect, whose promise is unbreakable, whose words are immutable and eternal. When I hide in the wings of my Redeemer, the arrows of my enemy clatter to the ground, powerless. If my strength is not my own, if my righteousness is the Messiah's, my darkness only makes His light more lovely. Satan might as well be accusing the shadows in a Rembrandt of ruining the masterpiece. See what he's saying there? When you look at a painting and you see those dark bits, he's saying, don't let Satan have the upper hand in you. When he accuses you of the darkness in you, he might as well be accusing that darkness as somehow ruining the masterpiece because God, Peterson says, bends even our sin to the service of his glory. This, I am convinced, confounds the principalities of evil. We need to preach to ourselves daily. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. May God through Jesus allow relief to conquer your ruin this Christmas season. Yes, and very amen in Jesus' name.